Hi everybody, I'm Sabri Beneshore from Marketplace. And I'm Tim Fernholtz from Quartz. And this is Actuality. You chase them, and you chase them, and you chase them, and you chase them, and they either get the treatment that they need, or you chase them out of the city. So that is former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani ranting about homeless people on WNBC and what he did to, uh, I guess, get rid of them as the mayor of New York in the 1990s. But his aggressive methods have perhaps fallen out of favor, but there's still a political brouhaha in New York City over homelessness, with the current mayor, Bill de Blasio, being criticized for not doing enough and launching a new policy program in response. Homelessness is always a problem, but when the weather is about to become miserable, this is when a lot of people are starting to think about it, especially the people that have to find a place to not freeze to death. Nationally, homelessness has been on the decline for the past several years, but there are still 580,000 people who were homeless in 2014, according to the federal government. So it's not going down fast enough. Homelessness is a problem everywhere. We're starting with New York, basically, as we'll see, because New York tried something very unique. And there are two things that make it unique. One, homelessness has been going up for the past several years. And two, almost all of the New York City homeless population, one in 10 homeless people in America, are in shelters. And there's a reason for that. So Sabri, let's talk to your colleague, Noel. Noel King is a reporter on the Wealth and Poverty Desk here at Marketplace. And she's going to tell us about a very idealistic lawyer who tried to solve the problem of homelessness in New York a few decades ago. Hi, Noel. Welcome. Hi, guys. New York City is the only city in the U.S. where the public has a responsibility to provide shelter for the homeless. Why is that? It's an unprecedented kind of story when we talk about cities across America. And it dates back to the late 1970s when this very young lawyer who had never tried a case, who was working for a fancy upscale white shoe law firm uh, doing tax law, anti-securities law, antitrust law, He was walking around the area called the Bowery, which is a neighborhood in New York City that kind of is a one mile stretch. And back in the late 70s, the Bowery was a place where men who were down and out, who were down on their luck, they would go and they would spend the night in the streets. And this young lawyer started talking to them. He was the kind of guy who enjoyed chatting with everyone he met. And so he started asking these guys, why do you live out in the streets? And they told him, we don't have any place else to go. New York City doesn't provide shelter for us. So this young lawyer started thinking, hang on a second. This is 1979, and this is the developed world. Why doesn't New York City have a responsibility to provide these men with shelter? So he decided, even though he had never tried a case and he was basically right out of law school, that he was going to find a legal argument to prove that New York City did have to give these men shelter. This was all men out there on the street, not women? Homelessness in the 1970s was very different. Homelessness, for the most part, was a lot of men. It was a lot of white men, and it was a lot of men who had served in the military, who had either been in World War II or been in Korea, and were suffering traumatic effects from those experiences, or men who had been laid off from blue-collar jobs, from factory jobs that had closed. So back to this young lawyer. Yeah, his name was Robert Hayes, and he was 26 years old. So he's a very young guy. At that young age, he changed the course of how New York City treats homelessness forever. Robert Hayes set out to prove in court that New York City had a responsibility to shelter these people. And he started by digging through old legal books. He ended up seizing upon the simplest thing in the world, which is the Constitution of the State of New York. It was rewritten in 1938 at the height of the Depression, right? New York's governor at the time and various New York representatives at the time 
understood that the Depression had changed things in New York State. And they said, we're going to rewrite the Constitution to better reflect what's going on. So in 1938, they change a bunch of things in the Constitution. And one of the things that they add is this provision. The aid, care, and support of the needy shall be provided by the state. Robert Hayes said, listen, I'm trying to get something real big here. So if I'm going to do that, let me go to the judge with a simple argument. He went to the judge and he said, it says right here in the Constitution, Your Honor, that the state shall support people who are needy. Well, these homeless men, they're really needy. And the judge in the end, in this is 1979, in the winter, agreed with him for two reasons. Robert Hayes had made his case with the wording of the Constitution, but also because the case he presented to the judge said, if you don't fix this, we're approaching winter, we're in winter. People are going to die in the streets. This lawsuit had happened in July. We might well be looking at a different outcome, right? That's right. And one of the things Hayes and others told me was that they were expected to lose this case. Nobody thought that they could win. But what Hayes did was he went down to the Bowery where all the flop houses and the homeless shelters were, and he rounded up a bunch of priests and social workers, the kind of people who had committed to living among the poor. And he put these guys on the stand and they told stories about going into homeless shelters and being beaten. One of the most powerful pieces of testimony I was told was about what the toilets looked like. And the judge at one point said, "Okay, well, on any given day, yeah, a toilet can be clogged and a toilet can be filthy. So, okay, maybe you just went to the shelter on a bad day and documented then. But what the judge said was, there's no walls between these toilets. You have men lined up one after the other with no privacy going to the bathroom in front of each other. That horrified him so much that in the end, he looked at Robert Hayes's case and said, you know what, this is basically a matter of these people's civil rights. There has to be a right not just to shelter in New York, but to decent shelter. So when the judge decided that in 1979, what did the city do? Hayes knew that the city was going to stall, so he made sure the judge leaned on them. Look, it's December 5th. That was when the case was settled. It's December 5th. By December 6th, it could be 20 below zero in New York. So get it done quickly. And what happened in the latter part of 1979 was that the city did start opening shelters, but there were two problems. One, there weren't enough beds in those shelters for the number of men who needed them. And number two, the shelters, again, they were filthy. Shelter, yes. Humane, no. Robert Hayes ends up taking the city back to court and suing them yet again and winning yet again. And this time the verdict is not only do New Yorkers have this right to shelter, but they have a right to decent shelter. And over time, I mean, it's 2015 now, right? It's 30, 35 years later. There have been numerous challenges from the city and the state to the right to shelter. They have said time and again, we can't afford this. We don't think we should have to do this. No other city has to do this. So this is still being litigated to the present day. So the big question of all of this that I have is with this court case in 1979 and all of this money the city is spending, has it actually worked? You know, when I asked Robert Hayes, he said he was proud that he won that case. But in the end, nothing really changed. One of the things that I have heard time and again and read time and again is that if you are homeless it's a really unpleasant place to be. It's a really unpleasant situation to be in. And so there is some small measure of grace in knowing that you have got the right to shelter. But if it's a dirty shelter, it is actually really not that helpful. The fight these days, I have learned, is not just for the right to shelter. It's the right to housing. All right. Noel King, reporter extraordinaire on wealth and poverty for Marketplace. 
Thanks for talking to us about this. And great Thank story, Thank you guys so much for having me. So as Noel told us, Robert Hayes, the pioneering lawyer, uh, at the end of the day was maybe a little disillusioned with the results of his legal battle. You can see why, actually, if you talk to someone who has spent some time in New York City homeless shelters. So we have Mario Gonzalez. He is a shelter monitor, so he actually goes around looking at conditions in shelters. But he's also spent a good amount of time sleeping in those shelters as a homeless person. Mario, it is so nice to meet you. Thank you. Nice to meet you, too. Mario, how old were you when you became homeless? How did it happen? It was three years ago. I'm 50 now, so that'll make me about 47. I used to live with my common-law wife, and one day she decided to throw me out the house and got an order of protection against me, so that left me out in the street because the apartment was under her name. So from there, I really didn't want to go to any shelters because I've heard they have a bad reputation for a lot of violence and a lot of things like that. So I was staying at the city hospitals, emergency rooms, and things like that. You would actually go into the emergency room and just sort of sleep? Yes, sir. I I would do that. But then after a while, security would throw you out. So I had no choice but to go into a shelter. So from there, I went to a shelter in Manhattan. It's called Bellevue. So from Bellevue, they placed me at a shelter called Project Renewal, and I stood there for a year. What was it like to to live there? It was chaos, a lot of violence, lack of security, lack of staff, lack of everything. And actually from there, I was transferred to one of the worst shelters listed in New York City, which is on Wharf Island. On an island? Yes, it's on an island. And, oh, man, that, that place was hell, excuse the language, but that's what it was. The violence there was off the hook. The drugs were rampant. They were selling drugs in the facilities. They were doing drugs in the facilities. And no staff, nobody was doing anything about it. One time, we was in the dormitory, and an argument escalated between two individuals. So one individual pulled out a razor and cut him in the face a few times. And after he cut him in the face a few times, he stabbed him. The guy made it out and collapsed in the hallway. So the other guy got arrested. But believe it or not, a few weeks later, he was back at the shelter. What the hell? Yes, it is hell. I, I, would, I would definitely say it is hell. So this sounds like Dante's Inferno or something, but you don't live in the shelter anymore. You managed to uh, find your way out. Can you tell us how you did that? Yes, sir. One day I was at the shelter and these young ladies came. They were with the Coalition for the Homeless and I got myself a case manager at the Coalition and I started to get um, housing interviews. I am now currently living in supportive housing in Manhattan. Supportive housing is due to people with mental illness. Being in that place actually somehow (laughs) I ended up with depression, anxiety, so that qualified me to get into supportive housing. So you've lived in these shelters and the way you describe them is pretty terrible. This is the bare minimum that the city has to provide. Is it enough? 
I mean, I figure it at least keeps you from s freezing to death, but I'm not even sure about that. Um, I would say yes, it's a place for you to lay your head on, but that'll just be it. But it's so violent that people are refusing to go in there. They'd rather sleep in the park or on the subway because the fear of getting robbed, getting raped, getting hurt, maybe even dying in the shelter, that's what they're afraid of. Understandably. Mario Gonzalez, shelter monitor here in New York. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thank you. Clearly, sheltering is not enough. You can't just throw a bunch of people in a warehouse and hope that homelessness will end. But at the same time, surely we have learned something in the past decades about what does work. It turns out we have. It's a surprisingly simple solution. <laughs> when someone doesn't have a home, you give them one. And it's a policy called Housing First, and it is more complicated than that. To understand it and to understand what could actually help homeless people, we are talking to Maria Fascarinas, uh, executive director of the National Law Center on Homelessness and Poverty. If we zoom way out, we have like a, a giant natural experiment, right? We have New York with its special law. We have L.A. with whatever it does. We have a whole bunch of different approaches going on. Can we look at the U.S. as a whole and ask, what have we learned at this point? What we can say is that where housing is provided, that makes a difference. Instead of offering shelter to people who are homeless, you offer housing plus any additional needed services, like in some cases mental health care or substance abuse treatment. So, Maria, the shelter requirement seems like a start, but it's not really enough, is it? Well, so I think the legal requirement is incredibly important. It is a recognition that homeless people have a legal right to something as basic as shelter, but it's not a right to housing, and that's a key difference. Can you explain um, that distinction for us? Absolutely. Well, shelter is emergency overnight shelter. It means you have to leave in the morning, you don't have a place to store your things, you don't have a place from which to try to find a job. So it's not a solution to homelessness. It's a very, very short-term stopgap emergency kind of Band-Aid solution. So are there specific cities that use housing first that you can tell us about? Salt Lake City is one example. And it, it's somewhat limited because the focus has been on homeless veterans. But I should also add, it's coupled with a, a determination by the city not to criminalize homelessness. So that's another big trend when cities pass laws that make it a crime to live in public places. The housing first approach has gotten pretty strong reviews, obviously, from uh, advocates for the homeless. And it even seems empirically to have done a much better job of actually reducing the number of homeless people as opposed to just sheltering them, that really key distinction. But it seems like it's not catching on in the cities with the biggest homeless problem. What are the obstacles there? Is it just the upfront expense in exchange for long-term benefit? I think you've put your finger on it. I mean, the key is expense and really investing resources. Housing First is a programmatic model. It makes a lot more sense to offer housing and then bring in whatever other services the person or the family needs rather than shelter. And that it's less expensive. Why is it less expensive than providing shelter? 
the same reason that it's less expensive than doing nothing, which is that when you're in crisis mode, you're using up a lot of emergency resources. You're going to the emergency room instead of going to healthcare clinic. You're targeted by police and using up criminal justice resources if you're on the street. Even if you're in a shelter, you're often on the street during the day. We often hear about sort of the problem on the homeless side where you see mental illness or health problems or drug issues. But then we also have kind of the housing supply side where it's probably not a coincidence that a lot of the places with a high uh, per capita rate of homelessness also have really expensive housing and a lack of affordability. Do you think about that much when you're working on these problems, how cities can create more affordable housing in general? Absolutely. The lack of affordable housing and, in fact, cuts in programs that used to provide a lot more affordable housing are the leading cause of homelessness. Um, Right now, in a lot of cities around the country, there's a lot of development, and there's a lot of um, construction of luxury housing or commercial property. That does two things. It um, typically tears down housing that had been um, once been affordable. That's what we call gentrification. But it also um, provides an opportunity for cities. Cities could be saying to developers, look, as a condition of building luxury housing, we want you to create X amount of low-income affordable units. That's called inclusionary zoning. Many cities have laws like this, but they're not targeted at people who are very poor. So when they they define affordable housing, they don't capture those people who are very, very poor or homeless. We have been grappling with homelessness for decades and decades and decades. What's it like being a homeless person today compared with being a homeless person, say, 20 years ago? Well, I think 30 years ago is when the crisis of homelessness first started in this country, the current crisis. Mm. At that time, there was a lot more public attention and public outrage about homelessness. I think now a lot of people think that homelessness has always existed in America, and so it becomes easier to just walk by a homeless person on the street and not even think twice. You mentioned that the modern crisis of homelessness emerged, say, about 20, 30 years ago. What caused it all of a sudden to become a crisis? Around that time was when there were big cuts to federal housing programs. And at the same time, um, this was an era, actually in the 70s, there had been a big push towards gentrification in the cities. Got it. Cool. Well, not cool, but... I mean, not cool, right. <laughs> not Important cool. information yes. for us to know. Yes. Yeah. Maria Foscarinas is the founder and executive director of the National Legal Center on Homelessness and Poverty. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. All right, so what do we take away from this? Well, for starters, it's hard to make a change on paper, uh, and it's even harder to see that legal change become reality. Throwing a shelter on top of somebody's head for a night is so deceptively simple and so not enough. And what's also striking is that it's not a mystery what actually works. Like, put these people in actual housing, get them the drug support that they need if that's the case, and at least you get the chronically homeless folks out of the shelters and then you free up the shelter space for the people who need it just for a few months. You know, a family in a hard time, they can pass in and out and it just makes the whole system so much more efficient. 
Let me read you some numbers. A study in Los Angeles found that when chronic homeless people were placed into permanent supportive housing, it saved the city more than $80,000 a year. And for crying out loud, Mario was spending the night in emergency rooms. Speaking of that, according to a report in the New England Journal of Medicine, homeless people spent an average of four days longer per hospital visit compared to non-homeless people. The extra cost? Over $2,000 per hospitalization. Yeah. So, yeah. And now for something completely and totally different. At Quartz, we report on surprising discoveries. They are the news items that make you raise your eyebrows. Today's uh, actuality surprising discovery is that scientists are hard at work on a pill that will replace exercise. Yes, that's right. An exercise pill. I want it. I think we all do. Uh, it sounds great for the lazy among us. It's not actually intended for the lazy. It's intended for people who are unable to exercise because of health conditions, age, illness. Scientists uh, from the University of Sydney and the University of Copenhagen uh, have been working together, and the first thing that they did was m try and measure all of the stuff that your body does when you exercise, all of the hormonal and protein signals that get sent that convince your body to change its ways and become healthier. Uh, they've been working on that for three years, and it seems like they've figured out an incredibly complicated blueprint for what exercise does to you. Now the next decade is putting that in a pill. Are there any clinical trials of that pill that one could sign up for now? <laughs> there may be a wait list, Sabri, but I think... But um bum get it, wait list. Hey, <laughs> let's never speak of this again. <laughs> well, I guess that's all the time we have. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you want to know more about the homeless or the other terrible downsides of the new global economy, please check out Marketplace.org and QZ.com. And while you're at Quartz, sign up for our daily brief. It is the perfect way to start the day. And, of course, we would love to know what you think of this podcast or any others, what you like, what you do not like, what topics we should take on. Uh, email us at mpqz at marketplace.org or leave a message for us at 802-430-6779. We're on Twitter. I'm at Sabri Tree, S-A-B-R-I-T-R-E-D. And Tim is at Tim Fernholtz with a Z. And Actuality is at Actuality Pod. Uh, thank you to Jake Gorski, who made our theme song. Thank you to Claire Tansketter, our noble producer. And much love to our overlords at Marketplace and Quartz. You've been listening to Actuality, the Marketplace Quartz podcast. We'll be back soon with more stories from around the world. See you then.